Welcome back to the film experience. That's right, it's another edition of the Supporting Actress Smackdown. Uh, this is the second to last episode of the season. Woo! And this time we're doing 1965, so we will be discussing The Sound of Music, that immortal classic, uh, with Peggy Wood as Mother Abbess, as well as the fictional Hollywood biopic Inside Daisy Clover, which starred Natalie Wood, and Ruth Gordon was nominated as her mother. We'll also be discussing the social drama Patch of Blue with Sidney Poitier, Elizabeth Hartman, and Shelley Winters as a monster mom. And finally, um, the filmed version of a British stage production of Othello that was very highly regarded at the time uh, with Laurence Olivier in blackface. Yes, you heard that right, unfortunately. Maggie Smith and Joyce Redman were both nominated for supporting roles in that film, which is the only Shakespeare film to have all of its principals nominated for the Oscar. I'm very excited to introduce our panel uh, this month for, we're discussing the film year of 1965 and through the lens of the supporting actress category. And very happy to welcome my guest, uh, Baby Clyde, who is a golden age Oscar obsessive and works in casting in real life. Um, so welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, I've newly started writing for you at the Film Experience, which is um, a delight. Um, so Baby Cloud Oscars um, on Twitter. Um, I think I'm Baby Cloud Oscars everywhere on Letterboxd as well. And then writing for you at the Film Experience. Great. Um, and then we have uh, Spencer Garrett, third generation actor. Third generation actor. Hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, my grandparents uh, ran a showboat on the Mississippi River called The Goldenrod, and raised my mother, Kathleen Nolan, who was uh, probably most known as uh, Kate on an old show called The Real McCoys, and Wendy in the original Broadway production of Peter Pan, and I sort of grew up, uh, you know, soaking in it. Um, so when I decided to, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, it was, I kind of had no choice. Um, I've sort of family business. I mean, I'm carrying on the family business, but I've been uh, an actor and producer for about 35 years. And you just had a really big year. A little one-two punch there. It was kind of nice. It's sort of a once-in-a-lifetime year for an actor. And uh, I, I, I had uh, I had no idea when when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out. I did. I recorded the scene. I shot the scene with Quentin, but I was not given the opportunity to read the script, so I had no idea w at what point in the movie that scene you know, was going to be. And so uh, when the trailer came out and I was sort of all over the trailer, uh, it was sort of a lovely surprise. And, and, and uh, you know, and the movie could not have done better. So I, it was uh, it was nice. And then to play the beloved Sean Hannity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> strange experience being in that guy's skin. But, yeah, it was a fun year. It was a fun, fun year to be an actor. And uh I'm on uh, I'm on Twitter at number one at one Spencer Garrett and on Instagram at Spencer Garrett one. So pretty easy to find me. And uh, you can DM me and ask me questions and all kinds of stuff. I love to interact. Great. Um, I'm very happy you're here with us. And then we have Kaylee Donaldson. Uh, yeah, I've been writing professionally about pop culture and film for just over three years now. You can mostly find me on Pajiba.com where I write about intersections between celebrity and journalism and pop culture and the industry and stuff. I also write sci-fi fangirls where my main specialty is stories where there are sexy monsters that women want to fall in love with. So Shape of Water, etc, etc is my main thing. 
Uh, and I also have a podcast called The Hollywood Read with Sarah Mars from Lenny Gossip, where we talk about film industry stuff every week with increasing levels of uh, pessimism about the world falling apart. <laughs> Great. Uh, that's quite a quite a sell line. <laughs> yeah, just subscribe now. It's definitely a laugh fest. Yeah. And then uh, we have Kevin Jacobson. Hey guys. Yes, I'm Kevin. Um, I write for Gold Derby and Awards Watch, uh, talking about the Oscars and the Emmys and most award shows, some reality TV even. Um, and I have a podcast called And the Runner Up Is, which a few people on this panel have been on, Nathaniel, including you um, and Terrence. And um, that just gets into the best picture, what I presume to be the best picture runner up in each Oscar year. So we talk about a lot of good movies and discuss whether it maybe should have won over the Best Picture winner. And so it's a really good time. I'm all the, I'm going backwards all the way back to the first Oscars, and I'm almost at the end. So lots of episodes to dive into if you haven't already. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can find me on Twitter at Kevin underscore Jacobson. And that's S-E-N, not S-O-N, by the way, because that can get confusing. <laughs> Thanks. I'm very happy to have you on. And that podcast is a great listen if people haven't heard it. Um, I was able to guest star on the 1951 episode. And so we will be talking about the same actress again, Shelley Winters. Yes. Somebody we discussed that time. Um, right. And then uh, finally, last but not least, we have Terrence Johnson. Hi, everybody. Um, so, yeah, I'm Terrence. Uh, I currently am a member of the Hollywood Critics Association, and I write that Lenovoogstore.net. Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Terrence D. Johnson. It's Terrence with one R and no A. Um, as some people <laughs> don't know how to spell my first name. Um, and I've also created a web series called The Vampire Resistance Corps, which is a sci-fi horror web series um, that's on YouTube. Yeah, you you started out writing about. Um the industry but now you're moving over to the creative side yeah i started out uh it's interesting recording this podcast sort of around uh, when award circuit is is uh i think closing up shop um but yeah i got my start writing over at award circuit um following people like you nathaniel you know sasha clayton um and yeah and now i'm moving over went to film school and sort of moving over to the creative side well, I'm very happy to have you all here, and uh, this, we have a lot to discuss today, um, but I, I thought we should start with the most painful watch um, for Modern Eyes in 2020, uh, Othello from 1965, which was a filmed adaptation, well, I use adaptation in quotes, um, of a very uh, acclaimed stage production of Othello, and basically they enlarged the sets and just shot it. So um, it's most famous nowadays as being uh, Laurence Olivier's blackface movie. So very uncomfortable for uh, modern audiences. Um, I don't even know where to begin on this one, but does anyone have anything <laughs> they need to say right off the bat? Um, I'll, I'll kick it off. I, cause I watched it uh, a few times over the last several weeks and um I have to say that the blackface aside and as comfortable, as uncomfortable as that made me, I, I, I love this movie. I love the performances in it. I love Frank Finlay. Uh, he's extraordinary. Derek Jacoby was heartbreaking and funny and 
wonderful. I'm, I'm a huge Derek Jacoby fan. Uh, no bigger Maggie Smith fan on the planet than, than I. And it was uh, fun to revisit Joyce Redmond's performance again. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I'll let somebody else touch the Olivier. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's a, as, as filmed adaptations go, as a filmed, as, as a, you know, a stage production that's filmed, um, you know, much the way like Richard III was done, I, I thought it was beautifully done. No. I hated the Olivia performance, and it wasn't just, I mean, it's inextricable from the fact that he's in blackface, especially as he gets more angry and rooted in the, the green-eyed monster. He does let a lot of that Olivia, you know, staginess, but also it's full mm-hmm. minstrelsy. I mean, he does the wide-eyed eye rolls and the sort of grunting, and it's, I found it incredibly difficult to watch, which is obviously a shame for a number of reasons, but especially when he's sharing the screen with Maggie Smith, because she's mm. great. I mean, playing Desdemona is kind of, it can be a bit of a thankless role if you do Shakespeare badly. And a lot of places, including the Royal Shakespeare Company, have done Shakespeare badly. But she has the right kind of <laughs> empathy and tenderness um, and actual passion as well. Like there are moments when Olivia is really not speaking where you genuinely believe that this is a relationship rooted in passion, which you have to buy with both Desdemona and Othello and with Amelia and Iago as well. Otherwise, it doesn't work. It is a full on just, you know, let's record the stage show and in every school we'll show this movie on English click class for the next 40 or 50 years uh, but I, I mean I really couldn't get over the promise I didn't think that um, I mean it is this historical document in this way of just the fact that this was 1965 and this happened uh, and you have a film with Sidney Poitier out the same year and he I believe the next year after this turned down the opportunity to play a fellow for an NBC series or like a TV special because mm-hmm. he said he was worried about getting cast in that kind of the noble black stereotype in film. Uh, so that was another shadow I had hang over me with this entire performance. Uh, if you want more absolutely cringe delights, go read um, Olivia's biography where he talks about playing the fellow because it is, he, he regrets nothing. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting, but uh, did any of you see that uh, documentary Tea with the Dames with Maggie yeah. Smith and, um, well, so they, they talk about it. I was kind of shocked in that documentary that they constantly are talking about Sir Lawrence Olivier. Like he was like almost the main plot. So they had shown clips of Othello on that documentary, but that had been my only experience with this movie before then. But I know like uh, baby Clyde, you said it was very difficult to sit through. So I wanted to <laughs> hear from you on this. I mean, I was going to say a film so bad that blackface was the least of its problems. Um, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm not bothered by blackface as such, in that it is of its time, you know, we can watch it now as a sort of a document of that time. The general um, consensus would have been that Lawrence Olivier, the world's greatest living Shakespearean actor, was just working his way through the, the great plays of Shakespeare. You know, he'd done Henry V, he'd done Hamlet, he'd done Richard III, it was time for Othello. I don't have too much of an issue with him blacking up to do it it's just what happened at the time i have a major issue with how badly blacked up he is you know mm-hmm. it's like he's got false eyelashes on you can see the wig line it look, looks like he's been put on by sellotape it was a little um, shoe, pol- shoe polishy he's got no like proper skin pigment or tone he's literally just put boot polish on himself um and then there's all the eye rolling um shakespeare is not for me you know i'm i'm british we grew up on it we did it at school even when I was 12, I always used to say, why are you still talking? With him especially, this is a filmed stage production, which we understand, and we give it some leeway because of that. 
but he is acting as if he's projecting to the very last row at the um, the old Vic, you know, and it, you can't do that on film. It's excruciating, to be honest. I, I couldn't barely watch. And as I say, the blackface wasn't the problem. It was these horrible, horrible acting. And I'm I'm quite a fan of Olivia on, on occasion. You know, I think he's amazing in The Entertainer, for example. Um, but this, it's just just too, too much. Sorry, it's interesting you mentioned the makeup as well, because actually in Olivia's biography, he's so proud of the makeup. Because mm. two and a half hours every morning putting it on, I actually have to quote, uh, he didn't want a quote-unquote pale coffee-coloured compromise. So, uh, wow. I mean, he made a commitment. I mean, he worked really hard on this as well. Like, he was pushing 60 at this point in time. He's really kind of aged out of the character, but he worked out, put on all this muscle, took voice classes to get his voice an octave lower. Like, he threw himself into this so hard, and it's just, I just couldn't deal with it. And also, he seems exhausted throughout it in a way that I found hard to ignore. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Just a bit of quick bit of bit of context. Um, in Britain uh, during this period, from the late fifties to the late seventies, there was a show on TV called The Black and White Minstrels. I va- I vaguely remember it as a kid, and basically it was British white entertainers, singers and dancers, dressing up in full minstrel costume. Wow. And every sort of Saturday night, they would come on and they would sing like Swanee and Mammy and country songs and show tunes and do big elaborate dance routines, it was a huge, huge success. I mean, it got like 20 million viewers. What years um, was it? From 58, it went on for 20 years, 58 to 78. Um, and it was kind of controversial at its time. You know, people said it shouldn't be on, but the general consensus was it was just wholesome entertainment. And I'm sure when Olivier does this in 1965, you know, which is right slap bang in the middle, it wouldn't have been seen by the general population as anything hugely offensive in the way we would look at it now it would just would have been part of like the entertainment of of the time unfortunately he kind of heads towards black and white minstrel territory in doing it um rather than doing what i would see as a kind of serious um film performance which is what we would have wanted to see i out of curiosity to see how this was received at the time i i looked up the new york times review I highly recommend reading it because it's like a really interesting historical document of like a very confused reaction to the movie because Bowsley Crowther is like, he's he starts the review being like offended by the blackface and then he suggests that you should see it um, because you want to tell your children you saw Olivier do Othello. And he's like, just like I was able to tell my children that I saw Primrose and Doc Stater in their incomparable minstrel show. So he, so he <laughs> starts by complaining about blackface and then ends by sort of saying, don't miss it because it would be this important. It was a very, very strange review. Yeah, this movie was tough um, because I think Othello might be my favorite Shakespeare play. Um, and so to get to see it realized on screen was nice and getting to see like a professional, you know, high quality, very, very talented actors do it was great. And then it was like, I agree with regards to like the blackface is like the least of its problems. Um, Cause it's just, everything about this movie is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and even, even as sort of like a, a stage production of it, I don't know if I would have got, what I normally get when I read Othello out of it um, from the way that this production was done, um, particularly as it pertains to, to Maggie Smith's uh, Desdemona. Um, it's just, it's really boring. 
you know, like they, they, they essentially kept in almost all of the text. They took out like yeah, a couple of very faithful of lines. Yeah. So it's pretty faithful. Um, but it's like, there are like, there's like a gulf between the actors. You've got people who are like way up in the rafters and then you've got people who are like firmly, firmly planted on the ground and there's no in between. And so it just, the alchemy of that movie is just not there. You know, and Olivier, I enjoyed some of the things vocally that he was doing with that character. Um, but then every time I would look at him, I'd just be like, you just look so stupid. <laughs> it's just, it's just, just so stupid. Um, and yeah, so it's like, it's hard to take much away from this movie just because of how ridiculous it looks us now. Well, yeah, I mean, but the interesting you say that the playing to the Raptors versus feet on the ground, because I think that breaks down on gender lines for these performances, because both Maggie Smith and Joyce Redman, who, you know, we were discussed, we were looking at for this uh, project, are are really like they're playing for the cameras as opposed to mm-hmm. like the audience out in out like they, they have adjusted. I can only assume they've adjusted their performances for the camera. And I know, Spencer, you've done both theater and film. So that is an adjustment actors have to make. I, I think, but I feel like everybody was playing for the camera in this. And, and I, I, I definitely am in the, minor, in the minority here to a certain extent. I feel like maybe because I'm, I'm just such a theater junkie. And so that's the reason I endured this movie, you know, for, you know, three times in a row. <laughs> I, it was, I couldn't take my eyes off it because um, it's a play I've always wanted to do. And I've watched the Orson Welles version. I watched the Kenneth Branagh, Lawrence Fishburne version. Um, and this, to me, was a was a, a piece of film theater, mm-hmm. as opposed to the other two films. And uh, I, I just <laughs> I didn't have a, I didn't have a problem with the actors playing to the camera or playing to the balcony or whatever. I felt like they were they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. I mean, and, and the, the scenes, the scenes with the scenes with Maggie Smith and, and, and Olivier, she's so simple and so subtle and so real. But at the same time, you're aware that she's aware that she's in a movie mm-hmm. and she's playing, she's, you know, she's playing to the camera, but I, I think that's kind of what I enjoyed about it, mm-hmm. I guess. So. Kevin, we have yeah. her. Uh, yeah, well, I was just—I didn't want to like add too much to the chorus of like piling on <laughs> Othello here because that's sort of kind of where I come from too. I mean, I was an English major in college, so I read all kinds of Shakespeare. I read probably too much to kind of just spoil my appetite on Shakespeare as a whole. And then when it comes to just like watching it on film, for some reason, I don't know if it really ever translates that well for me like I can read it I can see it on the stage but on film I just don't there are very few Shakespeare kinds of uh, adaptations that really do it for me for whatever reason and this just being a filmed theater you know I can sort of appreciate just watching it as if it's theater but as a film I just can't really get engaged with it but like you know looking at it through the lens of Joyce Redman and Maggie Smith, as we were doing here, they were the two that I really did attach myself to, especially Joyce Redman, who I think has less screen time than Maggie Smith by about half, but still, I think, manages to 
just have a natural essence to her that feels like she is, I don't know, like in 1965, she feels the most like a real person (laughs) as opposed to most people in the, in the play slash film. So, you know, she had the least to do. I mean, she's, she's sort of absent through, you know, the, the first half of the film and then she kind of comes on so strong at, at the, at the end, the last act, at the last act. And, and she just, she blows me away with her simplicity. Um, because everybody is so acty and so big and and you know loud, and she was the most naturalistic. Uh, yeah, I, I kept wondering how she got nominated until the last act, right. because and then you're like, I, oh, okay, like there not, it is. <laughs> yeah, she's so in the background, but but what I do like about her performance is that it it builds very nicely. Like she's been this watchful presence and not quite absorbing what's happening until it's too late. Uh, Might be my favorite, uh, my favorite performance of the five women. Um, oh, wow. They're all so vastly different, but yeah. uh, but each time I went back and watched the film again, uh, I just kept the God, this this woman, and and you know she never really be, she wasn't a star. I mean Frank Finley never became a star. There were they were stars in their own world, but she was so perfect for this role and this moment uh, in this movie that. Um, I just kept I just kept thinking, yeah, that's my that's my favorite performance. I thought it was just very, you know, I'm glad I'm glad that it got a nomination. I'm glad that it was recognized. Yeah, well, I, I, was, I, was say, I loved it as well because, you know, she pops up. She really pops up like at about an hour in, um, which I had lost interest in the movie by that point. But like she revitalized it very quickly yeah. because she has such a hard job, I think, as like a character. Because the second you meet her, you have to understand that this is like a woman who could be Iago's wife. And that there's like what, like she has to sell that, like their whole relationship in one scene, <laughs> you know? And then, then as the movie goes on, you also realize that she's her own person and she just didn't realize the deception until much too late. So I thought that was really interesting, that sort of juxtaposition of being like, you know, scheming enough to match wits with somebody like Iago, but like not at his level of sort of villainy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You really have to buy that. She is that there is love and devotion and passion between her and Iago, but also that she has been like, she knows that marriage isn't the sort of, you know, bed of, you know, roses and rainbows that Desdemona is still in that honeymoon state. She's moved beyond that and is aware that, you know, on some level, her husband is kind of awful, but (laughs) This, but hey, that's marriage, and that kind of yes, yeah, yeah. Joyce Redman's a bit of an odd one for me because you know I'm I'm English. I'm I'm very well versed on English sort of actors and movie stars, um, and yet she's someone I do not know anything about outside the context Same. of her two Oscar nominations. You know, she's she's got that famous scene in in Tom Jones, which she's probably most well known for. Yeah. But other than yeah. that, I I don't know anything about her. Never seen her in anything else. I assumed she was kind of a stage actress. I actually looked her up recently, and she. She died in 2012. Um, she was 96. And yet in the kind of like 30, 40 years I've been watching stuff, she's never come up ever in anything. Um, she's kind of stuck in those, for me anyway, in those two Oscar nominations. Um, I agree with everybody here about her. She's the only thing that comes to life in the whole film for me. And that last kind of 20 minutes is, is, is fantastic. As I say, I don't, I don't like Shakespeare. I'm not a fan of the way Shakespeare's performed. Um, and yet she somehow makes, made, 
that dialogue feel real, you know, in a way that the others didn't. She actually felt like a real person uh, rather than someone performing. Um, I thought she was fantastic and I was actually surprised because up until maybe the last half hour, the the Othello women had made no impact on me at all. But like she went right up in my rankings um, by the end of it. I thought she was great. Yeah, I think my favorite scene between in the whole thing is just every well I guess sort of every scene with the two of them but especially when Maggie Smith is like singing her lament um of her past and just just the two of them their interactions together I think were for whatever reason the most they drew me in the most because I felt their history and I felt that that bond was real but I think what's most impressive about Joyce Gunner Redmond, I think it's probably that it's just so different from her Tom Jones performance. So, so even though I also only have those two performances as context, I'm like, wow, she had real range. So it's kind of a surprise what you're saying that her other work isn't, I'm going to assume it's mostly stage too. And that's why we don't know. But uh, any other comments on Othello before we move on? Anybody? Well, I was just going to say that I think you're absolutely right, Kaylee, that um, Maggie Smith's role is in, entirely thankless you know Maggie Smith I was gonna say she's never bad she's sometimes bad but Maggie Smith um <laughs> is, is a is a great actress a real scene stealer you know but here she doesn't really have the opportunity to do that it's a very kind of bland role she spends most of the time apologizing doesn't she I think most of us as well kind of associate Maggie Smith with these more caustic kind of wavering very witty roles you know uh, I went to university in Edinburgh and did English lit there, and Miss Jean Brodie is basically worshipped, for better or worse. So, you know, it took me until I was about 24 to realise Maggie Smith wasn't Scottish because her accent in that in Harry Potter is so good. Uh, and obviously she's now known for this whole generation for uh, the, you know, Downton Abbey and the, you know, firing off these one-liners while being just the worst rich person alive. So seeing her be very tender and very kind of restrained on that front was really interesting. Um she holds on to that back. If you do watch Tea with the Dames or read any interview where she talks about Larry Olivier, like <laughs> they hated each other, everyone hated Lawrence Olivier, except for Joan Plowright, and even then it's debatable. <laughs> she did a, she won actually an Olivia Olivia Awards in the UK are like our version of the Tonys in the West End, and she won an honorary award and she was on stage and said, I never won this before, and I thought that was Larry's revenge from beyond the grave. So <laughs> I like that she's holding on to that grudge all these years later, you know? Yeah, yeah. I do think that Maggie Smith has become a bit of a, a bit of a cliche. I don't know. She she's been doing the same performance now for like thirty years, almost exclusively. And for me, anyway, it's become a bit bit tiresome because she's so much better than that. She has so much more range. But also, I can't blame an older actress who's put in the time and you know survived Olivier and done forty years on the stage or so, just deciding you know I'm just going to fire up one liners and drink tea and hate poor people, you know. You know what? She's been a star for 70 years, so she's doing something right. I mean, God bless her. So we should move on to let's go to the actual winner of the Oscars, Shelley Winters in A Patch of Blue. Uh, This was her third nomination. She'd already won the Oscar at this point. And uh, Kevin, you mentioned in your write-up that she hated this part, which is so interesting. She won the Oscar for it. Yeah, she just... Historian, so do tell. (laughs) well i just she she openly said even in like the press and everything that she just hated her part and i think part of that was just her wanting to provide distance from herself and the character which is just the one of the most repulsive kind of vulgar kinds of characters especially for that time period and to be to be doing that is just it's a lot and i can imagine that she would want to be like 
see, I'm an actress. This is a character. This is not me. And right. I don't know. I, I've, I've seen a few reviews actually mention that, like, you can sort of tell that she hates her part. But I don't know if that um, if any of you felt that way. That did not come across to me. Like, I, I was like, yeah. wow, she is going hard at this. She has no compulsion <laughs> about going dark, dark, dark for this. Um, I thought she was <laughs> phenomenal in this part. But I understand it's a very divisive yeah performance because I was talking to one of my best friends on the phone and I mentioned, oh my God, I just watched Patch Blue for the first time and and loved Shelley Winters so much and there was this big long pause and he didn't say anything. He was like, great, I'm happy for you. <laughs> so clearly, oh clearly it's a very divisive performance. So we probably have some of you that didn't love it. Yeah, I'd be like your, your friend. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that she was committed, which uh-huh. is great very committed to that part and there's one moment sort of where you know they've thrown the neighbors out of the the house and you can see that there's like some sense of a familial bond there Mm -hmm. i thought that was a really great subtle moment but like her character doesn't arc and that's not to say that your character has to arc but like i just when it's all tuned up to 10 the entire time and there's no modulation and it's just like that character is just straight awful and you don't feel like the awfulness is coming from a place, you know, it's like, I want, I would love to know more about the woman that she was Mm. and see that reflected somehow in the performance and that wasn't there. So like, even when she's planning to, you know, go off with her friend to start a, you know, they're going to get their own apartment and they're going to do whatever they are going to do. Like a whorehouse, I think. Yeah. Like a whorehouse in a, in a, in a way, and I was like, okay, that's interesting, but also like, where did this come from? And so to me, it just felt like, you know, I give her I give her kudos for being like super committed to the awfulness of that woman. I was just like, you know, just where I never got like the where it was coming from outside of that one subtle moment after they thrown the neighbors out. Yeah, I have to say I disagree because I felt a lot of like layering in this performance. Like I, my favorite beat in the performance is when she real, I think it's around the time of the glasses or maybe it's a little later where she realizes that her daughter's like happier than she's used to seeing her. And there's this Mm -hmm. very quiet beat where she starts to smile at the table and you can tell she's plotting like, how do I destroy this happiness? Or like, here's my chance to destroy happiness. And it was just something about, I mean, Kaylee, you mentioned in your blurb her malice. So it was something about that like that she really cued into that. And, you know, some people are, there yeah. are awful people in the world. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was an interesting take on somebody who sort of had, had given over fully to their own worst self. I, that's how I interpreted it. At least. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I, I, I not that I want to have like a depressing movie. But I think this would be interesting to watch with precious. <laughs> I wrote that in my, yeah, in my there's a lot of parallels, you yeah. know, like with the Monique character and, and for me, like, even though that Monique's character is just utterly dreadful, mm-hmm. you know, and super awful, you, you do, I feel like you get a little more glimpses, you know, via that standout scene at the end, but a little more glimpses into who that woman was. And so to me, there wasn't enough of that with Shelley Winters, but mm-hmm. like the commitment to, I can, I can see why she would want to distance herself from that part because she is so committed. There is not a moment where you're like, oh, she's 
it's going to be, there's not a moment where you're like, she's going to be nice to her daughter. Yeah. <laughs> Parents, I think you're, I think you're yeah. legally obligated to say uh, precious based on the novel push by Sapphire. The Sapphire. Yes. But um, for me, for me, it was, um, it was turned up to 11 uh, and I, and I kept, uh, I kept wanting to find something to love about her. I, I hadn't seen the movie in many, many years and it was, uh, it was interesting to go back and revisit it. And I, I wanted like like you mentioned the glasses moment the sunglasses thing like there's there's never a moment i kept waiting for that little spark of humanity or that little that little touch of empathy and and i and i and it it never came through for me um you know it, it i i really i really wanted to find a way into her to 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 love something about her and it was uh and it was it was tough it's a it's a powerful performance it's a dominating performance but but there was that 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 lack of empathy of 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 any of any capacity that that was really a, just a turnoff to mm-hmm. me. It was just so it was just hammering, 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 you know, that one note playing that same note over and over again. Um, and I, I, I guess- kind of appreciated that, actually, because I couldn't help but think of this performance in the context of like the funny bigot, which seems to be an Oscar gold for, you know, the past like five decades or someone like. Mm-hmm. Alison Janney and I, Tonya, where she's playing this disgusting, you know, repugnant woman, but you're also still supposed to kind of laugh with her because she has all these one-liners or like, mm-hmm. you know, 60% of all Sam Rockwell movies. Um, so I like the fact that she is this character who's completely pathetic and pitiful, but she's not trying to encourage you to be empathetic towards her. I mean, it's a really fine line because I think there could have easily been a moment where she has her big monologue and explains why her life is so dark and she went down this bad path and things. And actually, to just to see her be this Gorgon, and Shelley Winters makes a great Gorgon. You know, yeah. her wonderful lack of vanity and roles like this comes out great. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of her performance in Lolita, which I prefer. Um, I think she had such a difficult hill to climb with that performance compared to this, where I think everything's on the page more for her. Um, but I have no problem with this one just because it's Shelley Winters, but it is, like, I think all of the nominees actually for this year feel very much of this specific moment in time. You know, you probably couldn't even do this 1967. It had to be 1965 and nowhere else. So <laughs> it is a time capsule in the way that performance. But I see the echoes of how you get from like that to to Monique to Alison Janney to uh, Meryl Streep in August Osage County. These real kind of like um, blousey gorgons to steal a phrase from Guy Branum. Um, yeah, yeah. That kind of that kind of grand dame who's also just you know. I guess the funny bit is kind of a good description for that. It's it's a great character actor role. And, you know, I think that's another reason she wins is because it's it's a great character actor playing a role that's kind of written for just to show off the greatness of what she can do. Well, I have to completely agree with Kaylee there, because what I love about this performance is the fact that we're, we're not made to sympathise with her. You assume there's going to be some kind of redemption arc and it just never comes. She gets right. worse and worse and worse. And you just... Right. How films work, you know, certainly films of Hollywood films of this era, you expect there's going to be a happy ending of some description. And not only is like there's, it's what's so interesting about the film I thought, and I haven't seen it in probably two decades, and it's just so much darker than I'd remembered. Um, yeah. You know, there's rape and prostitution, and like it's proper abuse. You know, there's not kind of like um, we often hear about abuse, don't we? Or like we see someone having a bit of a, a fight at home or something, but she literally, we see a she, she, the, the daughter is blind because the mother threw like, was it boiling water or something at her. Um, but also, as far as I can see, Shelley's character, we're not, we're not given much depth in it. We're not, it's not explained. But she lives in this one room apartment with her 
totally alcoholic father. So what's happened in the past? Where's her mother? You know, how did she become like this? Did she become like this presumably because her childhood was maybe similar in some ways? You know, this is how abuse goes in cycles, doesn't it? And I assumed there was something which we're not told, which I, I appreciated. Something's gone on in her past to make her like that. Um, I love the fact that she was so awful and we were not given any excuses for that. I, I really appreciate that. And I thought Shelley can be really, she can go two ways. She can become quite whiny sometimes and she can also go really, really broad. And to me, she captured this perfectly. Um, I also thought Elizabeth Hartman is, is magnificent in this. Really, really great. Um, I was actually shocked at how, how much I love The Touch of Blue. I feel my well, kind of completely forgotten, really. Yeah, I, I, as a movie as a whole, like, uh, I understand it's also a divisive movie, but I thought it was great as a movie. Like, I was surprised by how sort of layered and, um, and like complicated it was emotionally. Like, you, you have like the, the central romance is not really a romance. Like, Sydney Poitier is very conscious of the fact that, like, it, this is to use 2020 parlance, but he's definitely conscious of the fact that there's some consent issues. This is a very young woman. And he's the very first man that's given her any attention and she wants to have sex with him. And he's very like reticent about it, but he is attracted to her. So it's like, there's all these complicated things going on. And I thought it was a really interesting movie. I was surprised actually at how adult it was, at least yeah. in terms of the things that it was dealing with in the characterizations. And I watched this this week. I, I was a Boy Scout, and I watched all the nominations in all the um, in all the categories. And so to watch a patch of blue alongside the pawnbroker, which I felt both felt really mm. modern, like way sort of ahead of their time, and then to watch that in conjunction with like the sound of music, you know, which is like the exact opposite. <laughs> so to watch something like a patch of blue and the pawnbroker really, really shows that how times were changing. You know, in 1965, it is this kind of like moment in Hollywood when they're not really sure what they're doing anymore. Um, are we doing these big clunky musicals or are we doing these realistic gritty interpretations and it's kind of a, a transitional moment I feel well that's a, a great segue not to Sound of Music actually but to Inside Daisy Clover because Inside Daisy Clover is one of those Hollywood movies about Hollywood and it's set in the 30s but it was made in the 60s and, and I always say period pieces you can they say just as much about the time they're made in as the time they're actually about um, and so, like, um, Spencer, I'm kind of dying to hear from you, you on this one, because you <laughs> you grew up in the in the industry. And this is a movie where the industry is thinking about itself. So I'm wondering yeah. how you felt about it. I didn't grow up in that industry, though, the, the industry that takes place in that movie. I had I right. really, was, yeah, no, no, I, I had a really, really tough time with this movie. Um, I had never seen it before. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I I really, really wanted to like it. And I had a really hard time getting through it. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know where to start. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I love Ruth Gordon. I'll watch Ruth Gordon read the phone book. I loved her. I loved, I loved, her, I loved her scenes, um, even though, you know, like you were talking about Maggie Smith, Ruth Gordon is someone that tends to kind of do the Ruth Gordon thing. She has that Ruth Gordon performance that's sort of quirky and very watchable and, uh, and you know, and sweet and off. Um, she was terrific to watch and maybe the best thing about the entire film for me. Uh, 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 <laughs> Natalie, Natalie Wood, the, when she opens her mouth to sing, I thought, oh, my God, she can't sing. <laughs> this is a woman who's been in, you know, like Gypsy in West Side Story. I mean, maybe she was having an off 
day, but it was the, well, the, the music for West Side Story. What's that? She was, she was dubbed by Marty Nixon, I guess. She was right? dubbed for this, too. Yeah. Oh, she was? She was dubbed for this. Yeah. yeah. Somebody yeah. else sang for her? But then they could have yeah. picked somebody who was singing better. Yeah. It actually <laughs> sounded like her. It sounded yeah. like her voice yeah. singing. Well, what I read is she starts a couple of the numbers. She starts off, and then someone else takes over, like, after the intro or something. So maybe okay. they mix them in well, but it's not her singing. Yeah. I'll, le- I'll leave it to the scholars for the for the minutiae of that because I, I did not know that, but I was I was shocked at how bad the singing was. Um, right, because the whole world's supposed to fall in love with her because of that performance. Yeah, because of that performance. For, and yeah, this is a strange movie for me. I actually like this movie, but in a really weird like um, I, can't I like wait. I like to grapple with it because it's such a weird movie. And Natalie Wood is my favorite old Hollywood actor. So, like, I love her in everything, although she's way too old for this part. Um, Even though she's 29 or something, 15. (laughs) She was actually still pretty young when she made this um, because she was, like, a a star who got famous very young. And, like, so she was in her 20s, like, when she made this. But it's still, like, she's supposed to be playing this like 15 year old or something. And it's like, it never reads as like a teenager, even though she's doing all the sort of floppy arm gestures and, and all that. I just think it's a really strange movie, but fun to grapple with because it's, it's got so many different competing tones. It feels like every scene might be from a different movie. Every scene was from a different movie. She was (laughs) acting her ass off. She couldn't sing. Um, Redford was interesting to, uh, because it was his film debut, I guess. And, you know, the first time he pops on the screen, you go, oh, that's a movie star. Um, and and in, in this is 1965, before Stonewall, and he's playing a bisexual character that everybody just admits sleeps with men, which was very was, surprising to me. I thought yeah, he was it's actually more sympathetic in the film than it is in the book. I believe that character is gay in the book. Yeah. And there's like a malice behind the idea that he would marry this poor young girl, innocent, who has no idea what's going on and everyone else does. So mm. the changes they make to the book are really fascinating because obviously the Hays Code's kind of on the way out, but there's still certain things you can't really see. You see that with Patch of Blue as well. Like so much prostitution in that movie and they never actually see it. Um, yeah. I'd read the book because it came from my master's course, actually. I think the book is a lot more consistent in its tone and also more knowingly camp. Um, it's also very clearly supposed to be about either Marilyn Monroe or Jean Harlow, depending on who you believe. And they mentioned that like every review of the movie I read from the time. Like, they're all just saying, yeah, this is supposed to be Marlon and her crazy mother, right? Um, but I think watching the film is most interesting as, like, a meta-examination of Natalie Wood herself. I mean, woman who gets into the industry very young, has a torrid relationship with her mother, is completely obsessed over by the public and the industry, and really has no chance at a life outside of that, I thought was very um, intriguing. Maybe not so much in terms of watching as a full two-hour-plus movie, because... I think this should have been just a full-on musical, to be honest. It wants to be a musical really uh, badly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And is, is, isn't it Andre and Dory Previn that do the music as well? Andre so, Previn, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, there's opportunities I, for that. I wouldn't have minded. It would still be a dark musical if it were a musical. But everything about it was, to me, was from, I mean, Christopher Plummer, who, I mean, what a year he had with, yeah. you know, that and Sound of Music. Um, but the, the sort of the dark and sinister character that he played, even the off, even his office this kind of Citizen Kane-like office that was sort of, you know, big and cavernous and, uh, you know, the little Roddy McDowell, min- you know, Roddy McDowell, poor Roddy McDowell had nothing to do. Why <laughs> was he in it? I kept waiting for Roddy McDowell he to have his moment. He, he, 
he was sort of the publicist slash assistant. Um, I, I wasn't really clear on what anybody in that film had to, you know, did for a living. Yeah. Other yeah. Than, <laughs> I thought uh, it was a very strange film in that not a lot happens, and yet it's dragged out over what two hours seven hours it's a really really weird it's set in the 30s and yet it's styled like the 60s yeah so this is really weird um you know they're wearing sort of bell bottoms and she's got that cap on she looks like she's going down carnaby street very very strange the musical numbers are terrible um we're led to believe that she becomes a star overnight and yet nothing about her reads star nothing uh, except for no. natalie what <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not a big Natalie Wood fan. I'm, I'm not a big Natalie Wood fan. But she, the character herself, we're given no reason why she's suddenly this overnight sensation. Um, and then she just kind of mopes about, doesn't she? It's a very, very strange film. It doesn't. You would have like hated it. for Desdemona, baby. I would have hated. But most unfortunately, I think the best thing about it is Ruth Gordon, and she's just packed off to a mental hospital after like 40 minutes and we don't really give i actually really love my uh, my favorite performance in it is actually um somebody i'd never heard of before Catherine bard who plays the wife of christopher plummer Mm -hmm. i loved how she was great over medicated she felt like that she was like sort of like a stepford wife and then and then when she had this very tonally crazy breakdown i totally believed it because it was so just too much after like being so mellow, um, which I th- felt to me like a sort of a drug mental illness problem. I thought it was, she was really interesting, but she had like almost no career. It was like, she made only five movies. So it's just a very strange movie, but it always makes me think of um, the book I've mentioned frequently, um, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, the Mark Harris's book on 1967 Hollywood, which is That's two right. years after this, and how much Hollywood in the mid sixties was, changing over from old to new Hollywood. And I think Natalie Wood is a really fascinating side character in that book because as the book mentioned, she, she was the age to be new Hollywood, but she was old Hollywood through and through yeah. because mm-hmm. of her child stardom. So I think in that way, as you were, as Kaylee, you were saying as like a sort of meta thing about Natalie Wood, it's really interesting. Maybe because I love Natalie Wood so much. I, I've seen this movie three times, actually. Sorry for all of you. Oh, <laughs> I, I wanted to love it. I really, really wanted to love it because I grew up, I grew up yeah. in this town and in this business, and yeah. and and I was absolutely sure that I was gonna just get, uh, just sucked right into it. And about yeah. thirty minutes in, I was like, oh god, this is gonna be a slog. Yeah. And such a tone would have done wonders for this. Like, if it had had the same really bleak tone as, like, the final five minutes of the movie where she's trying to commit suicide and is just constantly distracted by silly little things. Like, yeah, it was yeah. very strange. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so this is kind of a, for me, kind of like a disaster from start to finish, to be honest. Um, <laughs> just, I, But at the same time, I think if I was like a journalist in 1965, I would just have so much fun writing about this movie (laughs) because of just all of the layers, like we were discussing with Natalie Wood, kind of the meta aspect of that. And I think she is really going for it in this film. Like she's going for something and it feels like, you know, this could be like 
one of those things that people write about in like an Oscar campaign of like, look at the, look at the sort of historical nature of like her mm. backstory and how that informs her performance. And she's like, she has a awful wig and she's like totally like deglamming for some of it, but then she was somebody going for an Oscar nomination. As far as yeah. And like, yeah. I just feel like it's, really kind of cringy her performance yeah, to be yeah. quite honest well that's the weird thing for me about this movie is i actually like the movie even though i recognize that it's kind of a disaster but um even though i love natalie wood love 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 her i do think she's terrible in this so it's like yeah she's not great it's weird she's just not right very by golly whiz. It's, it's, yeah. it's weird i mean it's, choices were made I was going to say for Ruth Gordon, I think she's the only one for me that really sort of, I guess, understands what movie she's in. Like, it feels like she understands that it's sort of like campy and a little bit like you're going a little too far over the edge. And she just has like that. I don't know, just a different kind of energy that I think enlivens what is very much a dour, depressing two hour experience for the most part. But then, you know, she ultimately is put in an institution and she, I don't think she even has a line beyond like the first 15 minutes. So yeah, it's kind of sad it's a, it's to just cool. be like, Oh, okay. We lost like the only good life force of the film. I've seen the film many, many years ago. And I remembered her as like this pushy stage mother, which is what I was expecting. And then that didn't happen. <laughs> she gets packed on and I was like, Oh, this isn't, isn't what I remembered at all. But I think Nathaniel hit the nail on the head a minute ago with, with what my problem with Natalie Wood is is that she's an actress out of her time. So she's come up through the, um, through the studio system and yet she should be with the method. You know, she should be, um, mm. she should be acting in a totally different way and she, and she doesn't. And so often she's, she's in a film where you feel like she should be much more naturalistic. The movie feels like it should have come out around 1952. Frankly, this yeah. should have been like yeah. two hours and 48 minutes and directed by Vincent Minnelli and there should have been <laughs> a lot more pizzazz, you know? Or yeah. yeah. Can I just say, as a total side note, apropos of nothing, it's the second movie. That, uh, I love I love playing Connect the Dots uh, with, with different actors and what movies they were in. And um, it's the second movie that uses the Santa Monica Pier, where I grew up two miles from the Santa Monica Pier. Mm-hmm. Um, it uses the Santa Monica Pier, which is clearly the Santa Monica Pier and the, the carousel, the merry-go-round, and they call it Angel Beach, California or something. And in The Sting, it's supposed to be a pier in Chicago. And it's cl- like for, you know, unless it's too inside baseball, you know, you 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 know that it's this you're looking at the Santa Monica Pier and yet they're trying to pass it off as something else. And both movies happen to have Harold Gould and Robert Redford in them. So that's my six degrees. Of yeah. Robert Redford feels so interconnected to so many things to me in the 60s. He, was, he wasn't <laughs> really like a mega star until like sort of the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Um, I loved him in this, though, actually. So he was I think it's a great performance. my favorite part of the movie. Yeah. Um, his introduction is brilliant. Just, I, I totally agree that like the second, I mean, yes, we know him as this big, you know, movie star now, but like if I would have seen that movie then, I'd have been like, oh, like that is an, that is somebody I will have to take notice of mm-hmm. um, and want to follow their career. Just, and I, I think all, I think the supporting characters really were the best part of this. Uh, it's pretty hard for a, how a bigger movie star you are. It's very hard for a movie star to play a movie star. Michelle Williams playing Marilyn Monroe. 
Misha Williams is a great actress. Like yeah. I would say, possibly the greatest of her generation. But she does not come up. She hasn't got the, that movie star power. That thing that you have inside of you. That thing you can't um, properly describe. So you can't pull off playing Marilyn Monroe when you don't have that inside you. And that's how I feel about Natalie Wood here. We're told she's a movie star. At no point do we actually believe she's a movie star. I get what you're saying, and I agree with it in this performance, but it's also, like, Natalie Wood did have that energy as a star. That's why this performance is so fascinating to me, because it goes so wrong. Mm. Like, um, right from the get-go. Like, she's, yeah. act, she's, she's acting, you know, she's got to dial up to 11 the moment you <laughs> see her. With the cigarettes and the flailing arms, and well, she's trying to come off as a teenager. I think that's what it is. Like it's just, it's you just can't a, do that. You can't do that when you're 29. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of that whole period of Jennifer Jones's career, where David O'Sullivan kept trying to make her into this like innocent, virginal young girl, even as she was pushing her forties. So she just, it, it seems like it's almost like an SNL moment where her way of playing a kid is to like put her hands on her hips and stomp and pout and kind of, yeah. you know be very capital A actorly. I think that's another reason that you see a lot of reporting around this movie at the time that is very, oh, Natalie wants that Oscar man. And I couldn't escape that feeling with this film as well. It's like, she really does want this kind of, you know, it, it, she probably would have earned it by this point in time. She's Natalie Wood. She's been in the industry since she's, what, four or something like that. But yeah. the winner of Best Actress of the Year is Julie Christie, which is a very new Hollywood kind of performance. And then Samantha yeah. Eggers is nominated for Collector, a movie that I love. Yeah. Um, so she can't help but feel kind of out of time. The one, I think the one thing about the film that does feel like it's moving forward a little bit is Robert Redford and the fact that that is a bisexual character in a 1960s movie who's not like an evil, slutty madman. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how films from about Hollywood, you know, that are full of glamour and excitement and that can be so boring. Um, so I don't think there's much glamour in this movie. That's no, weird. No, 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 no. Know if it wants to be glamorous. <laughs> that's not saying this thing needed sequins and feathers. That's you know, it needed true. everything, and it had none of that. Yeah. That's why the, the 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 musical numbers, the you know the the Natalie Wood singing musical numbers were so uh, horrible because <laughs> I mean they were trying to do this sort of Busby Berkeley thing. Yeah. Um, and it was just it was just a train wreck. It must be Berkeley with songs by Andre and Dory Previn, which feel yes. like they should be from a much weirder movie. The thing that I wrote down when I was making my little geeky notes was, what a big, fucking, beautiful mess this movie is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry to swear, but... Oh, you just can't look away. It's like a train wreck. So we left, yeah. like, possibly the biggest topic for last. I don't want to race through this movie, but uh, The Sound of Music. Now, Peggy Wood was the nominee, um... Other than Julie Andrews was also nominated, of course, but um, she's not in very much of the movie. And I think a few people mentioned this and I was thinking about it the whole time I was rewatching it, which is always a pleasure to rewatch that Eleanor Parker was right there. Yeah. Was, yeah. Where yeah. was the nomination? Yeah. Where was it? I just cannot believe that she did not get nominated. She's great in it. Like she does more with single line readings in that movie than, than Peggy Wood does her entire performance. I mean, I feel like the climb every mountain moment must have been like the climactic moment for Peggy Wood. And obviously it wasn't that big a deal at the time they was dubbed. And she's, you know, been in it industry was. a long time. Another one that was dubbed. Like a, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Christopher Plummer's dubbed as well, I believe. Um, but, you know, they, they didn't care about it at that point in time. The, the My Fair Lady drama about Audrey Hepburn had passed and we just accept this is the, the way of things. And in the context of the film, Climb Every Mountain, it's, it's a beautiful song and it's, you know, a really beautifully staged moment, but it's like, let's get Elda Parker is doing so much and doesn't do it with a big song. 
but even the climb every mountain moment, even in addition to the fact that it's not her voice, you don't even really see her that much in the scene. It's, it's very shadowy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all. There's a the whole number looking out the window. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a great all... staging idea, but it's one of those yeah. moments where, like, what's the Oscar clip here? Is it just the back of her head? Yeah, and also, but it's really about the thing that makes the scene so great is watching Julie Andrews sort of absorb the sermon. So, I, like, I love Julie Andrews in this. Like, I would have voted for for Best Actress as much as I love Julie Christie. Um, like, but yeah, it just she had just won. <laughs> but the music is a delight from start to finish. So it was really fun to watch again. I was just I was gonna cheat, which I almost never do because I was running out of time, and I was just gonna watch. Peggy Wood scenes, which I never do for this moment. And I always watch the full movie, but I've seen this so many times. But then once it started, I couldn't stop. So I watched the whole movie. I was going to do the exact same thing. And I, and I, I watched it. I watched it from start to finish. And I, again, I hadn't seen it in years. And I mean, the, the acting of the kids is so sort of spotty and all over the place. And it's, it's, uh, some of it's good. Some of it's not good. Some of it's very kind of expressionistic and, uh, I but I I thought Julie Andrews was marvelous. Eleanor Parker got robbed. Yeah, absolutely. It was the first thing that I thought at the at the end of the movie. I thought, well, Peggy Wood was terrific, you know, in the in those couple of little moments. But um, I just love this movie. It's such a feel good movie, especially yeah. you know, especially these days. Uh, it's it's a it's kind of a perfect perfect film. And especially I mean, totally in the midst of the rest of these other films, which are much more dark. You know, it's yeah. just like. A very pleasant watch compared to these others. <laughs> I mean, you totally see why it wins Best Picture, even in a you know, even oh, yeah. at a point where the, the mega musical is kind of dying off and studios keep flinging money at it, even as it's going to going down the tubes. But this makes you believe that the whole genre could live on forever. It is just so effervescent in that way. And like, it, I've seen other stagings of Sound of Music. Obviously, it was a stage show before this, but it just makes me like almost insulted that anyone thinks that they could take over Julie Andrews in any form. I think she is so perfect in this role. Yeah. I mean, she is Maria. Uh, it, it's such an indelible performance. I don't have to see how she could be replaced on that front. But also just like quieter moments. The fact that she has this great chemistry with Christopher Plummer. You, you cannot fake that. That is lightning in the bottle there. But also going back to Eleanor Parker, that so easily could have just been like the evil future stepmom that you've seen in, you know, about 24 Mary-Kate and Ashley movies. And she has such like <laughs> genuine heartbreak to it. Just the way that she's like looking off at the distance and yeah. realizing... I can't have this. I'll never have this. And I should be okay with that, but I kind of am not. Yeah. Do you think Peggy Wood's nomination, you guys would know better than I, was Peggy Wood's nomination, had she been around for a long time and this is just sort of the, the kind of the career achievement nomination or? I think so. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I didn't get I didn't it. I today because I thought exactly the same thing. Um, she apparently in the 50s had been a TV star. So she'd been around. She's in some things in the 30s. She was a stage star. Um, but she was famous from being a TV, sort of an early TV. She was a, I don't know what the show was called. I did look it up yesterday, but she was, she had like her own sitcom or something in the 50s. In the UK? So, no, no, not in the UK, in, in America. Really? So maybe she was better known to voters than we know. Yeah. Often, if The story of Ruth, that is the right, show. Yeah. Um, and often if people have been around 40, 50 years, they've worked with everybody, haven't they? So yeah. people are thinking, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I work with her, she's nice, let's take mm-hmm. her name off. It's just so weird that people wouldn't have, Chosen to go with Eleanor Parker, you know she she's already an Oscar, and she was so, already an Oscar player. Eleanor Parker, exactly she that. was already in the club, you yeah. know. The three nominations <laughs> in the early fifties, and then kind of disappeared a bit, 
Um, but this would have been a perfect opportunity and it would have been deserved. Not that I would give it to her over Shelley necessarily, but it was a totally deserved performance. And it's so weird when the Academy does that. You know, they sometimes yeah. they just completely miss someone and you can't well, understand why. Sometimes they're just done with an actor when they're yeah. done with them for some reason where yeah. they love them. For Is it because it's not a big musical thing? Period. Like... Is it what? Is it just because she doesn't have? Is it because she wasn't doing like a big musical number that it wasn't seen as being a performance in a musical in that sense? Because you kind of see that with a lot of stuff like so even on stage as well with like the Tony know, Awards and stuff. You need your eleven I, o'clock number. Was yeah, Eleanor Parker nominated for any a Golden Globe or anything? Was oh, anything? nothing, nothing at all. No. And the the thing is, it's easy to think of the part as as uh, was a baby that you were saying that it could have just been such a flat part. Or such a typical villain part, but like I'm always shocked when I rewatch this because I see it every few years, you know, and I'm always like stunned at how real she makes that character, and that you can tell that she maybe she doesn't like love him in the way that Maria von Trapp loves him, where you feel that count, but you can tell that she actually has genuine feelings for the captain. But to so, me, it feels like it feels like a bit of an arrangement, you know. They're right. they're, they're perfect for each other, you know, yeah. and they kind of it's understood they're perfect for each other. Unfortunately, she does not really want those children, does she? And I love, yeah. I love how she does it so subtly. Like, you just know from the minute she walks on, she doesn't really want the children. I love that scene when they're playing ball. That is yeah. just like, that's so brilliant. One of them just pelts it at her. Yeah. Yeah, she's so just, that her stiff way of, like, throwing the balls. Yeah. yeah. She's not interested in them at all. I realised, I actually watched it yesterday, and I realised that I probably haven't watched it since I was a child. Wow. It's one of those films that you you know so well. It's so iconic. You know all of the yeah. songs, and that's always great in a musical when you literally know every single song. Yeah. Um, but I hadn't actually sat down and watched it. Probably it's on every Christmas in Britain. Every single Christmas day, it's on um, on TV. So I suppose in my head, I just assumed at some point I had watched it, and I probably hadn't watched it since the eighties. To be honest. Did you watch it on on Amazon by chance? No, I watched it in my DVD collection of everything. Oh, you did? Okay. Well, no, because on, on Amazon, there is a, uh, there's a special feature after the movie's over where Julia, uh, with, where, uh, Julie Andrews goes back to Salzburg in right. present day, and she walks, uh, walks through the iconic oh, wow. areas where they shot the film. And it looks like it wasn't shot that long ago. Um, and Salzburg looks exactly the same. And uh, it's really sweet. It's such yeah. a shame, really, that she won the year before. You know, I, I'm not down with her... Mary Poppins' performance at all, and I just think that's such a weird, probably Agreed. the weirdest actress, actress win of all time. And it's such a shame they kind of rushed to give her a, uh, a win then, when they could have held off to the following year, which would have made so much more sense, you know? Yeah, like the really specific politics for winning for Mary Poppins, just, you yeah. know, going up against Audrey Hepburn, who got her role in My Fair Lady, and then didn't even sing the role, and then everyone kind of almost feeling like it was a consolation. I mean, she felt like it was a consolation for a really long time. And then yeah. the following year, she gets the role that's absolutely perfect for her. Mm-hmm. I like how the sound of music just sort of unites people in joy. Like the one of only two times in my life I've ever liked Seth MacFarlane was when he hosted the Oscars and did the Nazi bit with Christopher Plummer, where it's like he's escaped and then does the close up to introduce him. It's like, even you, you awful person, like Christopher Plummer and the sound of music. And I appreciate that. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the sound of music is is quite phenomenal to think about because like, the stage version of The Sound of Music is not that good. Right. <laughs> um, it's actually not. One of the movies that totally elevates it. So. Yeah. Like, I, you know, West Side Story is great on the stage, and then yeah. it's amazing as a film, right? And, and normally, you at least want to start from something super high quality. And even though people love The Sound of Music and it, and it has won Tony's before, it just, 
we saw with the Carrie Underwood stage version that like when you go back to the bare bones of the thing, <laughs> it's not that good. Um, that was the unfortunate. Yeah. So I'm, I, I just cannot, I just, it's unfathomable that Peggy Whit got this nomination. As much as I, I like her, that character, and I do think that she embodies it very well, like, she just will forever have to deal with the fact that somebody in this movie was, like, outshining her, like, drastically. Yeah, um, I kept looking at the the two of them back and forth of, like, Eleanor Parker versus Peggy Wood. Why does Peggy Wood get this nomination? And I'm just like, is it just the nature of their characters? Like, yeah. it's just easier to love Mother Abbess than it is? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if they were just looking at the Eleanor Parker character and, like, not seeing the depth that she was bringing to that type of a character. Is it just yeah. like a likability thing? But then I look at like, well, Shelly Winters is winning for a batch of blue. And I'm like, I don't know. It's all mixed messages maybe, to me. Yeah. Maybe Eleanor Parker was too complex for them because like, yeah, you can't, she's not a love to hate villain because she actually does have a heart. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. It's a rare performance of a woman who doesn't like kids. And she isn't treated as like the demon bitch from hell for it. You know, it's 2020 and we still can't find that in films. So I, I've always appreciated it as a childless woman who wants to stay childless just for that reason. You know, it's such a like depressing rarity. And especially in a movie of this scale, which is all about the adorable Moppets. You know, right, right. she does not care. It's like that Pauline Kale review of the film where it's like, was there just one kid who didn't want to dress up and sing? And then, she, you know, Elder Parker feels like the woman for that moment. <laughs> it is weird that the songs are so sort of, you know, we, we know them all, as I say, but they're very, very treacly and very kind of sickly and very sweet all the way through. And yet somehow they're just great. You yeah. know, I've been, yeah. my, my favourite things, I've literally been singing my favourite things for the last 48 hours, like non-stop going around in my brain. Um, it's just great. I've been singing Mary J. Blige's version though, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm How about a little shout out to uh, Nicholas Hammond? Yeah. Uh, the kid who played Friedrich, who, you know, however many years later, I got he's to work with him movie. in What's Upon a Time. time. And, yeah. I mean, he's been around forever. And he crushed it in What's Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he was and really this, You know, this now, you know, grown, you know, older character actor guy to see him. And I didn't, I didn't realize that was him until uh-huh. I'd seen, I'd done some Q&As with the cast and the film. And Nick Hammond was there. And, you know, Quentin said, you know, uh, referred to him as... Friedrich from the Sound of Music, and I looked over and I thought, "Oh my God, that's right!" I see it in his face, and you know, talk about talk about an, uh, an arc, talk about a character arc. Yeah, yeah, it's talk like a classic that will live forever. Sound of Music. I'm. Uh, I I want to hear everybody's favorite musical number. Mine is the Lonely Goat Herd. I don't know why. I just can't get enough of it. <laughs> Mine is one hundred percent the Lonely Goat Herd. The Lonely Goat Herd is just utterly bonkers and totally surreal and like like you're on acid it's like who came up with this absolute nonsense <laughs> and yet i love every second of it it's proper genius yeah. it's i just love how you solve a problem like maria <laughs> oh yeah peggy uh, Peg, great peggy wood number because she gets to do her dismissive hand gesture which which was my favorite yes. part of her performance it's very like catty and just like <laughs> just these nuns talking about this other nun it's fun I just That's her it. Maggie Smith moment. Yeah. That's yeah. her withering nun moment. Yeah. Are you guys all telling me that Christopher Plummer didn't sing Edelweiss? Because that's my that favorite. 
Well, that's so sad. I really, really believe. I, I, I get, I get misty whenever I hear that song, and I love that number. I love when he sings it to the kids with the guitar, and then I love it in at the end when they're doing the, uh, the music festival, and they're, you know, and they're singing it out to, yeah, yeah, know, audience, and the, you know, the Nazis are sitting there on their hands, and they're not applauding, and. Uh, it's it's beautifully done, and I had no idea he didn't sing it, and I'm really bummed out now. I will say that. You know, I'm all in on bringing back dubbing. You know, I think one of the worst things to happen to film was this idea where we all just accepted, well, it doesn't matter if they're not great singers. It's more about the acting and the emotion. No, just dub them or hire someone who can actually sing. Okay, I'm not here for this like wavering, tinny, pitchy crap. Yeah. yeah. Now so you guys are going to tell me that Rami Malek didn't didn't sing. In, in Austin, right? Well, he didn't sing, but the team did something. I mean, they dubbed Rachel McAdams in Eurovision, and that performance oh, yeah. is still good. Yeah. The movie is, you know, well, whatever. I, I will say this about 60s musicals when they were dubbing so much, 60s and 50s, is that the dubbing was actually really good. Mm. Because, like, they, they must have had technicians who were just, they hired specifically for that craft because... You know, Natalie Wood sounds exactly like Natalie Wood in Yeah, it's um, convincing. Inside yeah. Daisy Clover and Edelweiss sounds like Christopher Plummer singing. Like it sounds like yeah. the the register of his voice and everything. So I will always be bitter that. that they didn't give Marnie Nixon an honorary Oscar. I know. I fought for that for so many years. Every year I would publish I like give these people honorary Oscars. She was always at the top of the list. I didn't know. She, she was, was go to Dumper, wasn't she? Yeah. It would have been didn't she Carol Lindley and Poseidon Adventure as well? Uh, I, I think she did. I'm not sure, but she did a lot of the most famous ones. She did My Fair Lady. She did... No, I, yeah. I think she sang Morning After in Poseidon Adventure. I think she dubbed Carol Lindley. I'm probably... I could be wrong, but... Um, but yeah, she should have gotten an honorary Oscar. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was such a weirdly specific career, and she was... She did a brilliant job every time she dubbed someone. People have gotten for far less, especially exactly. recently. Exactly. And especially knew about it as well. Like it wasn't a secret. I mean, when My Fair Lady came out, she was doing like you know game shows and stuff, and everyone knew she was the voice of Audrey Hepburn. It wasn't something they hid, which I once again I appreciated that, and I would kind of wish yeah. that we'd bring back that. I mean, maybe work on some of the sound mixing because Bohemian Rhapsody's dubbing was one of the worst things committed to film. But you know, <laughs> if we're going to just commit to that age and just just go for it, you know. Oh my God, we're way over time. We have to wrap up. So. uh as we normally we play this game where we uh, recast, where you pick one actor to uh, take one of the other actors' roles of the actors we discussed. So we'll have to do you do that as part of our goodbyes this time. So if you want to throw in something that you think would have been a fun recast, um, and if you want to mention a '65 movie you love, you can do that as you as you leave too. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. This was. So much fun, a really lively conversation. I wish we could talk for like four hours. <laughs> so um, uh, thanks again to uh, Terrence Johnson. I kind of want Shelly Winters in The Sound of Music. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mother Abbas. Mother Abbas. Wow. You know, because I, I mean, you know, she very much issued sort of the blonde bombshell status and really wanted to be this like character actress. So how about we put her in like a nun's habit and see... <laughs> <laughs> what she could do with that part. I love it. And where can the listeners find you? Uh, and you can find me uh, at my website, linawatchtour.net, uh, and on Twitter and Instagram at Terrence E. Johnson. Uh, Kevin Jacobson from And the Runner Up Is. 
Yes. Thank you, Nathaniel, for having me. This was a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Kevin underscore Jacobson. And um, the casting I thought of was, first of all, just Shelley Winters in any of these roles would be low-key iconic. <laughs> I just can't even imagine her tackling Shakespeare. I think that would be amazing. Um, but I, for some reason, I thought Joyce Redman for Inside Daisy Clover, I think, would be kind of fascinating just because I also think they're probably closer in age, her and Natalie Wood. So that would be maybe more convincing as like a mother and daughter. But uh, yeah, I would have liked to have seen Joyce Redman in really any types of things, because as we were saying, she didn't have a lot. So yeah. Great. And Kaylee Donaldson, all the way from Scotland. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I had great fun. Uh, Put Shelley Winters in the role of Amelia and have her be just the ultimate woman about town slash schemer slash Mrs. Iago who puts that man in his place. Uh, and you can find me on, um, you can find me on Twitter at Kaylee Ann and it's spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H-A-N-N, which is Gaelic, but not really. Great. And Baby Clyde, who's a recent joinee of the film experience. Hi. Uh, so you can, you can find me at the film experience. You can find me on Twitter, baby Clyde Oscars, because all I talk about is the Oscars. Um, the swap I do, the one that makes most sense is, is Shelley um, taking over from Ruth and inside Daisy Clover. I mean, Ruth Gordon's too old for the role anyway. So, and Shelley would be, she's great to that kind of mother role, isn't she? Um, I just suspect if she had been doing it, she would have demanded more screen time. So. <laughs> she was not shy. <laughs> Shelley Winters. Uh, thanks for being with us. And, and finally, last but not least, Spencer Garrett. So, so pleased you joined us. Guys, I love being with you all, and I learned so much. It was really an honor to be with you. Um, and, baby, you stole mine, so i got to pick another one. Uh, Ruth Gordon as the mother abbess. I mean, she would have she brought home that Oscar. She would have brought <laughs> home the gold. She would have been ridiculous and wonderful. And uh, I, You can find me at uh, on Twitter at number one. Spencer Garrett and Instagram at Spencer Garrett one. And you're already um, just, so this will make people happy um, listening who all love movies and television, all of our audience. Um, you have, so you're already back to work, which is new, right? <laughs> Cause people are going back to work. I'm a, I'm a new, uh, by the way, I'm a new Academy member. I'm a new, uh, a new class hey. member of the Academy. Congratulations. Uh, 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 a year, about a year in, I think I got, uh, I got admitted, uh, last year, uh, which was kind of a lifelong dream of mine. And that's very exciting. Um, hopefully we'll have an Academy Awards, you know, this year. Um, but yeah, thank God I'm, I'm, uh, I'm back at work. I'm on a show called Bosch. Uh, and starting work uh, uh, tomorrow on a, a show with Billy Bob Thornton called Goliath. So, um, and my series, I was about to start work on a, an HBO series playing Chick Hearn, uh, the Lakers broadcaster Chick Hearn for uh, Adam McKay, and we were pushed back until April. So things are slowly creeping back to life here a little bit, which is nice. But um, yeah, that's great to hear. You know, we, miss, uh, we miss movies and television. <laughs> yeah, big time. And, and, and you also have Blonde coming up, the movie Blonde. Yes, yes playing uh, with uh, uh, Andrew Dominic, who did Killing Them Softly, uh, and one of my favorite movies, uh, uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, um, with um, uh, Ana de Armas playing, uh, playing Marilyn Monroe, uh, and I play President Kennedy's pimp. Ooh. So. 
Really oh, looking forward to all that. Um, so thanks again to everybody. This was so much fun to talk about 65 again. I wish we could keep talking, but I really an incredible year for movies. I yeah. mean, just amazing, amazing, amazing movies in 65. Yeah. Genuinely from the bottom of my heart. I love doing this and you were all like fabulous guests. So thank you.